Ramona is one of our favorites here at Skylight, so please help me give her an extra warm welcome. Ramona Asabel. Yay! Okay, I tried this the other day, and I didn't do a good job. I am going to try an audience selfie, because that just seems like something you should do when you're on your book tour, right? Yay! Yeah. <laughs> now it just looks like there's empty seats. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank you. Now I will turn that off. Okay. Um, so you guys, some of you, have heard me talk about my first book and the genesis of that story and going to interview my now 96-year-old grandmother in New York to hear about the family that came from Europe and all of these, you know, stories of sort of misery and redemption in America. Um, that's not really what the book is about, but that's what I just said right now, so now you can say that. But this, at the same time that I was talking to that grandmother, I was talking to my other grandmother, who comes from an entirely different universe. She, this is the, like a family that's been in this country forever, you know, since those very first immigrants came, and they did very well, and there was lots of people in politics and ambassadors, and they made lots and lots and lots of money, and it was kind of this sort of American aristocracy until it wasn't really anymore. Um, some of it was because they were artists or supported the arts, and that is an amazing way to reduce your stores of cash <laughs> quickly. So there was a lot of sort of money slowly dwindling. Um, but then there was also a decision on the part of both of my grandparents separately to not pass money on down to my generation because they didn't really see it as a gift. They felt like it was it had been for them more of a burden than anything else, partly because they f didn't know how to make their own way because they had so much that, that hadn't been earned by them but also because they knew how that money had been earned. And there were definitely slaves involved, and there was, you know, steel mills, and it, you don't get super rich most of the time by doing something kind for someone else. So they didn't really want that money to keep living. They wanted to release that money to do other things. So none of that is what this book is in the story of this book. It's also not about, you know, the greatness of America. But that has been in my mind and in my life all my life. So I've thought about that and wondered, gosh, I wonder, am I better off? Because I don't have all that money. I could maybe use a little of it right about now to, like, you know, buy a house or pay for a preschool. But I also do feel a lot of gratitude for that kind of thoughtful decision and the, and the belief in me and in all of my cousins to do something with no help from anybody else. Although I will also say that one of the things I thought about a lot when writing the book was how much help I did get from all of those, that sort of generations and generations and generations of people who kept telling each other's stories and who kept supporting each other's work. So there's a lot of, especially women artists in the family who were taken really seriously and who were pushed to do, to do their sculptures and to do, write their poems and, in, and they really meant it. It wasn't a sort of cursory, we'll let the girls, you know, play over, over there. So, and those people wouldn't have probably done all of that stuff if the money hadn't been there. So I'm benefiting from that. It's just, it was, it was, it's so complicated and it's so rich and that's why I had to write a novel about it instead of write a short, short story. Um. So... That's all sort of, it's all, those are all the kind of questions that are in here. I think that the questions, the story is completely fictional, but the questions, 
I think, or inherited a lot from, from relatives. So before I start, I just want to say thank you again to Skylight. I love this bookstore so much. I think that this is one of the greatest bookstores anywhere in the world. And I don't have to tell you guys this. It's like half of you are writers. But you should buy a book tonight. It doesn't have to be mine. But we have to support these guys because this is how readers find the books that they're going to fall in love with and how writers' books get into the hands of the right readers. It's really, really important. And we need them for everything they do. So yay. And thank you all so much for coming. I just like some of my favorite people in the room are here. Okay, so I'm going to read to you from the very beginning, so you don't really need to know anything beforehand except that we start in 1976, and then in a little bit I'm going to skip ahead, well, it's really behind, but to another part. Summer fattened everybody up. The family buttered without reserve. Pie seemed to be everywhere. They awoke and slept and awoke in the summer house on the island, ate all their meals on the porch while the sun moved across their sky. They looked out at the saltwater cove and watched the sailboats skim and tack across the blue toward the windward beach, littered with the outgrown shells of horseshoe crabs. Picture the five of them, looking like a family. Fern was happy because they were together all the time. She baked. Not well, but muffins were muffins, and they never went uneaten. Edgar wore the clothes he kept at the vineyard house, which were stiff with salt and faded from sun. At dawn and dusk and six times between, he rolled his pants up and stood at the surf line, his feet sinking a little deeper with each wave. Fern wore a kerchief and dug in the garden, trying to make the cucumbers come up. Cricket was always in a sundress with a rainbow on it, the twins in shorts and sailor shirts embroidered with the name of their grandparents' boat. Fern was a mother and a wife and herself all at once. Edgar rumpled his children's hair, kissed his wife on the temple, mended the sails, painted the hulls, sailed out into the sound and bobbed there, pretending the shoreline away. Edgar loved the eelgrass and the cold water and the thunderstorms so much it was unsayable. He thought that if a poor person told you how he loved the eelgrass, you would believe him immediately, and how unfair that was if you happened to be rich. As if his feelings were purchased and therefore not true, not a strum he could hear in his ears when he dove from the wet deck of his boat into the sound, which was the precise cold it had been every summer, and the moon jellies brushed against his legs when he kicked, and he held his breath and stayed under as long as he could, submerged in the perfect brine, memorizing for the thousandth time this feeling. That he had a hand-built wooden sailboat made him only able to talk about his swim, his ferocious love for this water, with other people who also had wooden sailboats. Back home, taking his car in for an oil change, he would not be able to answer the question honestly. How was your summer? He would have to abridge. Beautiful. Water and wind. He knew that the summer house, the sea view, belonged to him because he had paid for them. Yet it felt like his bloodstream pumped with this place, like the rocks and waves and salt muck were in him, that he was of them. But money, old money, got all the press. The children were brown with white, white behinds, and they wore anklets of poison ivy blisters. For them, the whole point of life was to be wet and dry eight times a day and never clean. (laughs) 
As the children understood it, there were places where it was summer all year and they could not believe that their parents had chosen this northerly four-season land. The parents did not have a good explanation, only that their kind of people did not live in warm places. They could visit, Edgar's parents owned an island in the Caribbean, but then they had to go back to New England or Chicago or St. Louis or Kansas City, as if the particular ratio of city to country, winter to summer, brick to grass, was necessary for their species to survive. In the evenings, they rode to a nearby beach for a supper picnic, fern with a loaf of not very good homemade bread in a checkered cloth on her lap, the kids leaning over the lip of the rowboat hunting for jellyfish, and all of them in the music of father's oars, dipping, rising, dripping. There was always sand in the bed, and none of them wanted it to end. August arrived despite their prayers that it would not. Each swim and sail meant more. At the county fair, Will entered a small schooner he had carved and won first place, but Cricket's blueberry pie and James's bouquet of flowers went ribbonless. They rode the Ferris wheel and admired the blue ribbon piglets and watched the ox pull. They begged the days to pass more slowly. On the morning of Edgar's birthday, the phone rang. It was Fern's family's lawyer. She could picture him with his polished mustache and fat collared jacket, his feet on the desk. She had talked to him once when her parents had died the winter before and he had told her that he was so sorry for her loss and would call in some months when the affairs were in order. Now his voice was flatter. Fern, he said, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm already an orphan, she said, trying to make a joke. What other news was there? There's no more money. There had been so much for so long, the kind of sums that seemed immune to depletion, How can there be no more money? It was spent, and your father seems to have made some very generous gifts in his last year. Do you mean no money? The eventual sale of the house will pay the taxes. Fern found Edgar on the beach, scraping barnacles off an old mooring. There's no more money, she said to him through the wind. The money is gone. It was like announcing a death. The long-ago earning of that money, slaves, cotton, rum, and the spending of it were done. The money had lived its own life like a relative. What do you mean, Edgar asked. Apparently some of my mother's sculptures are worth something. Edgar put the scraper down in the sand, got up and walked toward the water, dove in. He stayed under long enough that Fern thought he might not come back up. She called his name. She dove into wearing her dress, which dragged her down. She called him and called him. She spun in circles, trying to find the ripples or bubbles that signaled his body. A moment later, Edgar's head appeared halfway across the cove. He ran his hands over his hair and eyes. He had swum the distance in one breath. Edgar turned and floated on his back, and Fern could hardly see him. His body was just a shadow between air and water. Okay, now I'm skipping. So this section is 1965. Edgar's father, Hugh Keating, had always stood in his office in front of big windows high above the fog-sketched city of Chicago, knowing that in every building were rods of steel with his name etched on the side, the skeleton tattooed with the name of its maker. 
From that vantage point, from that height, he told the story to board members, visiting businessmen, friends, of his family's humble immigrant beginnings, of the new metal city rising out of the ashes of the old wooden one. He thought again, thank goodness for poverty. It's much easier to be rich when your people were once very poor. Sleep comes easier too. The mind peaceful with all that balance. A pile of gold and the counterweight of past hunger. This comfort was earned. The Mrs. Mary had made an intricate study of how to belong. There were such things as lower class flowers, geraniums, chrysanthemums, poinsettias, and upper-class flowers, rhododendrons, tiger lilies, amaryllis, columbine, clematis, and roses, though never red ones. She learned that the slower one drove, the higher his class. Cocktail-wise, sweet was always low. Scotch and water, not even soda, was the highest. When they went to parties, she ordered two and then slipped into the ladies' room to sweeten them with packets of sugar she kept in her handbag. She made sure her husband's shirts did not gap at the neck, a sure sign of misbelonging. She practiced with index cards, renaming everything in her home. Formal wear, footwear, leisure wear, storm wear, beach wear, neck wear, table wear, flat wear, stem wear, bar wear, glass wear. Edgar's mother's nightmares did not involve being chased or drowned, but of someone catching her trying to eat an artichoke with a fork and knife, of wearing floor length to an afternoon affair, of everyone knowing that class for this family was not bred in, but a choice, or worse, a purchase. Mary bore a boy as she had hoped, and she gave her husband, seated in a wooden chair at the side of her hospital bed, a short list of names. Edgar John Henry. What about Hugh, he asked, liking the idea of a tribute to himself. Hugh was never king of England. Neither will our son be. The boy squalled, squalled like a brief violent summer storm, then fell asleep. There can't be anything bad about having the name of a monarch, she said. I seem to recall an Alfred, Hugh said. Edgar then, she told him. I don't need your help if you don't want to give it. The idea was to have four children, either two boys and two girls, or three boys and one girl. A big family was one of the socially acceptable indulgences, and it justified a bigger house, more cars, a stable full of horses. Giving anything for one's children, even if that something was a thoroughbred chestnut mare that cost as much as a small yacht, was an act of generosity and selflessness. Mary and Hugh both silently looked forward to the purchases they would be able to make in the name of good parenting. Neither of them cared whether the children would actually want horses or sailing lessons in the British Virgin Islands. During her pregnancy, the veins in Mary's legs had swelled into thick, raised ropes. Her calves were less pale skin and more twisting strands of blue. The doctor instructed her to keep them elevated above her heart, to massage them with particular oils. She would spend the rest of her seaside summers with a towel over her legs, the rest of her sundress days in thick stockings. Mary had wept over these things. She felt as if she had aged 70 years in the space of nine months, like the growing baby had detonated something poisonous inside her. The doctor joined Hugh and Mary in the hospital room. We've named him Edgar, she announced. That's a fine name, the doctor said. Stately and proud, he'll go on to great things. This seemed like an official pronouncement, and Mary logged it as fact. May I, he asked, pulling the blanket down from her lap. 
Her legs were dark with bruises, the blood gathered in underskin pools. Her veins were high and fat. I would feel worse about this if you had just had a daughter, the doctor started. But with such a beautiful son to carry on the family name, it's easier for me to tell you that you can't have any more. The risk of a blood clot is too great. You could die. Edgar was asleep in his bassinet, and both of his parents looked at him. Wrinkled little monkey-faced newborn, still looking halfway like a water creature. The ghost of the family they had intended to become, the fleet of them in matching Christmas outfits, matching tennis outfits, matching riding outfits, dwindled to a quiet three. Neither Hugh nor Mary cried while the doctor was in the room, but for the first months of Edgar's life, as he slept less and looked around more, as he fattened up and learned to grab things in his dimpled fists, their eyes were red-rimmed and swollen. Edgar had to live the childhoods of all his brothers and sisters who did not exist. He took fencing, tennis, rowing, and ballroom dance lessons. He learned to jump horses, sail boats, speak French and Latin, and recognize the architectural features of each great era. At age 10, he was enrolled in a figure drawing class in which he sat with a herd of older women and rendered the slack necks and falling breasts of of a variety of models. His mother wanted him to play an instrument, but his father vetoed most of the options. Violin, too screechy. Saxophone, too black. Piano, too feminine. Flute, homosexual, obviously. Saxophone, oh no, we did that one. Until he was left with a clarinet, an instrument that none of them could even remember having heard. (laughs) All through his school years, Edgar was busy from seven in the morning until he fell asleep. There was no time for friendships, and he found himself talking to peers only while they were all otherwise occupied with something that their parents hoped would make them better, rounder adults. Edgar's father floated above the social pressure. He felt that they had earned their way and had nothing to apologize for, which was what led him to the Mercedes-Benz dealership on a bright Saturday in summer, where a flock of suited men lit and relit his cigar, poured him bourbon, slapped him hard on the back while they walked the perimeter of a jewel-bright coupe, blue as blue, like they were circling a high mountain lake. I won't say it'll change your life, one of the suits said, but it'll change your day. How many times are you going to press your foot on that gas pedal? Thousands. This is the pedal you want to be pushing. Hugh handed over his old keys and a banknote and left with the windows down and the new leather warming against his back. He took his fedora off while he drove and let let his hair tussle in the breeze. He pulled into the construction dust of the family's forthcoming country summer house in the middle of a hundred acres of prairie and forest, the horse paddock on his right, the place where the swimming pool would be to his left. The car was like a blue mirage. Mary was standing with a man holding blueprints. Not recognizing the car, she thought someone was lost and did not feel like having to offer lemonade while they used her phone to get better directions. Look, she said to the man with the blueprints, I just need to know how many curves will make the driveway seem leisurely but not indulgent, and that's how many curves I want. Every decision in the house was a danger. It had to look understated and modest while still making other women jealous. It had to be beautiful in a way that seemed effortless, as if it had simply sprouted out of the good earth like an imperfect, perfect flower. There could be no columns or mock tutor. 
no leaded windows, yet there ought to be a lot of glass to show that one had servants to do the polishing. The house was to be built of blushing pink bricks freighted in from a particular mill on a particular sea-racked cliff known for its gentle shade of sunset clay. Mary swatted a mosquito on her arm and wiped away the star of blood and body left behind. The blue car stopped and turned up yet more dust, and she hated whoever it was in the way she had been trained to hate him. Here was a person who was showing off his money and enjoying it, both of which she knew to take as a personal offense. The air cleared as a man stepped out, and Mary saw that the man was her husband. He held the keys like she was a dog he wanted to trick into coming closer. Here, puppy. Here, stupid dog. I've brought you a bloody marrow bone. Mary's body offered her two choices. Run at him, swinging her fists, or collapse on the ground. She chose the former. Has anybody seen you, she screamed, like he had shown up with a murder weapon. It's top of the line, he said, repeating what the salesman had told him and finding the words less meaningful this time around. It's German engineered. You press the gas pedal thousands of times. (laughs) Nothing was making sense. You bought this? You bought this without talking to me? Where is our old car? I don't know what you have against a nice car. This is the car driven by African dictators and California dentists. You will ruin me. Still standing there was the man with the blueprints, and Mary remembered him, a witness to the crime. She brushed her pale yellow dress off and walked calmly over. If you could avoid mentioning this to anyone, I would very much appreciate it. My husband doesn't always think straight. It's a beauty, the man said. I'd be thrilled if I was you a car like that. Yes, she said. Well, it's not for us. The larger us. His kind, maybe, which was exactly her point. By the time the sun went down, she had taken them back to the dealer and picked out a beige Cadillac, three years old, slow, and respectable. It was not even completely clean inside. Mary drove. Hugh picked someone else's dead cigarette out of the ashtray and threw it out the window into the blurring poplars. Mary drove the long way through the center of town so that they would have a better chance of being seen. All through Edgar's high school years, his mother attended to the particulars of social success like a doctor to a dying child. And every year, it seemed to exhaust her more. She monitored every aspect. Hairdo, round with a small flip at the ends, sprayed stiff. Sweater set shade, pastel, charitable gift size, significant without being showy. Length of vacation, husbands went for six days, wives and children could stay on for two weeks. Books to be discussed in mixed company, anything French or British. Proper density of driveway shrubbery, very. Race and age of house staff, the paler the better, not older than 40. Mary did not gain confidence as time went on. Instead, the more she learned of it, the more intricate the labyrinth became. Wallpaper and lighting were frequently torn out and replaced at great expense. The house to Mary was a series of landmines. If she was found to still have Queen Mary chairs six months after everyone had gone arts and crafts, her entire social existence might be blown up. And no matter how hard she tried, she could not find the right dish to serve at a dinner. The old monies always served the same slab of gray beef with brown gravy and potatoes and never enough of it. But Mary was far from established enough to pull that off. 
Many times Edgar came downstairs for a late night snack after studying and found his mother asleep beside a stack of cookbooks. Beneath her head, a list of the pitfalls of each dish. Souffle, falls, lasagna, too Italian, champagne and caviar, trying too hard, lamb chops with mashed potatoes, fattening, fish, the smell stays in the wallpaper for days. Edgar woke his mother, draped her arm over his shoulder, and put her to bed beside his snoring father. Who cares what everybody thinks, he whispered. They're just old rich people. They didn't make the world. Thank you, love, she said, but you're wrong. They did make the world, and they still do. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Yeah. Edgar's mother, Mary, mm-hmm. she, uh, before you put the issue yet, is she uh, based on somebody you know no. <laughs> no, she's the mo- one of the most fictional characters. There's really nothing. There's no. That house is a real house. Everything else is invented. But I think, well, so I would say that she came from a little bit of like the combination. I lived in Orange County for a few years, which is the very, very opposite kind of money display. It's like display, display, display. Have you seen that I have a lot of money? I'm sorry, I don't know if you noticed that I have some money over here. And then the sort of juxtaposition of the places that were in the family before and then living in Santa Barbara after that, which is much more discreet. You know, people have very high hedges. Anybody who's anybody, you can't see their house at all. So just thinking about that kind of like the, the whatever version of it you're in, but the rules, there are so many rules and, and you must follow them exactly. And I feel like especially the women are, that's their role is to create sort of the habitat that matches everything and that allows them to fit in and sort of keep their standing. I feel like the standing is always being reassessed. I think that's probably true in, in all of our ranks, but it seemed especially so up there. So that was just, she was a character who was feeling that to the maximum degree, yeah. Yes, thank you. So this could be totally wrong, but I feel like someone told me that you draft, you wrote your first draft, writing like 10 pages a day for however long it took. So is that true? And then <laughs> That is true. Some of these people have heard me talk about this more times than they'd probably like, I write the first draft really fast because I think it's terrifying. Because how do you know you're going to get to the end? You have to get there to find out that you can do it. Especially in a novel. I feel like I can't, like, I cannot live with, I am just writing page 29 today. That's all I'm doing. And I know that there's, the rest of the universe is still waiting for me. So, but the thing about that is that what you get when you write the whole thing over five weeks is that it is nonsense. There's nothing that makes sense about it. There's like the glimmers of the things that I know I'm interested in. So that's really the goal in that first crazy thing is just like, what, what do I care about in this world? What are the things that I have the biggest questions about? What do I want to spend my time discovering? And then the story slowly gets shaped kind of around that stuff. And I, wonder, I always wonder, I don't know if I could figure out what, was, what remains, like if there's any sentences. I wonder if there's even one sentence that's, that stayed exactly the same. This book I think was only nine drafts. The first novel was 18. So that's good, right? I caught my, I was like, I learned stuff. I got better. (laughs) It took less long. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right, you're next. Hold on, David. I've got one up front. Do you think the habits of old humanity are as important as they were even, say, in the 70s? Do I think the habits of old money are as important as they were? I have no idea. I have really don't know. I have no. I, all of my information about old money is very dated because my people ceased to have it. So we went on being having regular lives. Um, so I don't really know. I, I imagine that it has changed in a lot of ways, and that there's things that are probably still really similar. Yeah, I would be curious. It's sort of like as a nation, we looked at old families differently. It seems mm-hmm. now. I do think that's true. Yeah, I think that we maybe have more of the sort of the aspirational obsession. All the tech and everything is like, if it wasn't reinvented in the last five minutes, it's not interesting to us. I'm sure that that, the sort of wave of huge money that's being built now, which is so much not about that old stuff, is changing a lot of the culture. But who knows? Yeah, I would be, I want someone else to write that book, and then I want to read it. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like you had some questions you were exploring with that. But what did you know before you started? How did the two storylines evolve? Like the kids on the beach and the family? I think I didn't know very much. I knew that I wanted to write about people who used to have a lot of money and didn't anymore. And I knew that I wanted to sort of spread out the experiences of that among characters who felt very differently about their relationship to wealth that may be or may not be anymore. So like these these guys, this set of parents ends up just really going for it and being rich and spending and enjoying it and not being so worried about it pretty soon, where other characters worry very much. So I wanted to kind of Really what it was is that I, I really think that all of these characters represent some aspect of me and my own thinking about this. So I wanted to create sort of a, a big universe. So I knew that at the beginning, even before I knew what those the voices were going to be. And I also knew that I wanted it to, because that's a lot of ideas. That's like thinking in like a little sort of stagnant pool, if you're not careful. And I wanted to put that up against mo- a lot of movement. So I knew that I wanted things to happen and to push those questions along in like a very actual sort of like movement oriented way so they all go off spoiler alert they go off on different adventures and they go there's like there's actual sort of like it takes place over about a week the main story and there's each of the discoveries that they make and the way that they come to sort of the what who they want to be and what they want to come home to is discovered in in the time and in the place based on where they're moving um so those were the things that I knew, and then everything else was a discovery, and it, there are things that came really late. Some of these guys saw a draft of this, like, I think about a month or six weeks before I sold it, that it was like, the, the order was completely different. The whole structure of the book was completely different. All the backstory was kind of tucked in, and it was like, engineered in a completely different way, and it wasn't right yet. And it took, you know, up until that was probably like the eighth draft somewhere in there of like, oh, I need to like pull all of this apart and rebuild it in a different way. Yeah, there's a lot of discovery. Yeah, I knew I knew that the kids were gonna be that were gonna be on their own. Yeah. I knew that everybody was gonna do a separate thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I didn't know, but there's like some stuff that I wouldn't, because I was writing quickly, this is one of the things I like about writing that first draft quickly, is that I'm braver because it's not 
critical. It feels like I can just try whatever works, and I have to because I have to write 10 pages that day. So, like, there's a giant. I don't think I would have thought of, or I would have thought better of the giant if I had been, like, drafting slowly and carefully. I would have been like, a giant, really? Let's just, let's just make him a little bit tall. But because I'm, like, in the brave zone of who knows what's going to happen, anything could happen, I put that in there, and then he started to become real, and I felt like I could believe in him, and then I could make him feel like a true thing and not just some weird device. Yeah. Do I see money as a benign or malignant character? I'm just trying to get a feel for it. Do I see money as a benign or malignant character? Both, maybe. I think yeah, I think that it I think that in the in the sort of story and in my own thinking that I think it it is an energetic force. It does a lot. It is in our it's, it's something that is happening to us all the time and that I think it functions as much in our imaginations as it does in any kind of reality. Like there is a number in each of our bank accounts that's factual and everything else, the way we think about that, the way that money came to be, the way we, the, the idea, the stories we tell ourselves about what it can do and what it can't do, the guilt we might feel, the, you know, all of that is like, that's an imaginative, fictional universe that's happening and we're, and we mostly don't talk about it too. That was the other thing that I really wanted to spend some time with is just that I think that it's still one of those taboos that's really held because it's so complicated. So it does, I think it does all of the things. Sometimes it can be really good and sometimes it can be really bad. Yeah. Having read your first book a while back, it seems to be quite a change in your style, you know, from going from the reality of the peasants in northern Romania to old money. It's just, and it seems like it captured the essence of both, but very different styles. Thanks. I'm glad it seems like yeah, they are really different stories. It was it was it was fun actually to be in such a completely different universe. But then I was talking to somebody the other day who was like, "Oh, I think I actually see a lot of echoes because there's a sort of departure that happens in both books. Like everybody has to sort of set off." And that's partly just because that's what I think about doing anytime I come up against anything like, "Ooh, can we solve this with a voyage?" <laughs> and usually I have. So that's maybe these guys are all doing that too but I yeah I think when I actually very very first started when I was doing having those conversations with my grandmothers I thought it was one book I thought I was going to write this book that was these two women's views on the 20th century fortunately I discovered very quickly that that was much 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 too big and I needed to like each one was already pretty big and yeah so I'm glad I didn't try to do that but they did this book I mean the the very first version of it the little tiny seeds that appeared like 13 years ago, I think, have been following along in the whole process, writing that first novel, and the sort of, like, the question of what, I wonder what that material is going to turn into. I wonder how that piece of the story will come in, and I kind of, in my own mind, well, I think of them as completely separate projects. I do see, sort of, a, they're kind of connected along, yeah. Yeah. I do. I'm working on a collection of stories, um, and they are all continuing in that theme about characters who are far away from home in one way or another. There's some shipwrecked Vikings and an aging mermaid. Um, And there are some animal mummies who are trying to set the score straight about exactly what they are thankful for. And there's a lonely cyclops living in Washington State. There's all sorts of people making bad decisions at some distance from their home. (laughs) 
No, I don't have a puppet. I have two stories yet to write. I have to finish those. They were due last October, but I have not turned them in yet. So (laughs) that will happen. I would would guess like in a year and a half or so that would probably be out. Are you living here? I live in Berkeley in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Can you talk a little about the experience of writing a first novel versus writing a second novel and whether you felt like you were supposed to know what you were doing and how that manifested? That's a good question. I, the experience of writing a first novel versus a second, I think there are lots of things that are exactly the same in that you just don't know what you're doing. At least I don't know what I'm doing. But the difference is that the second time I knew that was the way it was supposed to be. So the first time in every single one of those 18 drafts, I thought, okay, this is it. This is the draft. Michelle read it. She gave me notes. I'm finishing the book now. Here I am lying on the beach on Balboa Island. I'm finishing the book. And then I'd give it to somebody else and they'd be like, I have some more ideas. I'm like, okay, fine, one more draft. And I thought, I really thought that I was like, I just didn't know what, how long that middle was. And this time I did know, and I think that's actually part of why it was faster, because I stopped rushing on to the end, and I just settled into the like dark, wild, weird, unknowing place, and just hung out there without trying to peek my head up and find the light. And that made it much more efficient, and also much more fun. I think I suffered a lot less in this one. I say that, but I'm sure if you talk to my husband, he would tell you that I suffered a lot and complained (laughs) constantly about it at certain times. Yeah, I think that the, the experience was more, it was less, it still took all of that, all of those drafts and all of those years and all of that thinking and all of that completely upending everything and rearranging the structure to the last minute. And there was no like information that I learned the first time that made the process easier. I just knew that it was supposed to be hard. Yeah. Do you know when to fight the edits? When to fight the edits? I, in general, don't fight edits. I am a big embracer of if it can be better, it should be better, and no matter how long that takes. But there's a point where it's going to be done. So, I mean, and there are people, you know, people have ideas that don't feel right, and I don't take those ideas, but I try to be really open for as long and as sincerely as possible to to change to this thing turning into it's a it's like a living thing that's that's turning into itself over the course of a few years, and it really does shift in big ways. So each of those eighteen notes, you saw the note and you applied it because you saw it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I always yeah, yeah. There's I'm sure there were things that people said. I'm sure Marissa like probably had some terrible ideas. No, Marissa has never had a terrible idea, not once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's there's always there's like you have to build. I think that's one of the things about becoming a better writer is just like building your own instincts, so that you hear something and it feels like I don't want that to be true, but I know that it is true, or that isn't what you said isn't what I want to do, but I see that what you, that that means that I need to this character needs a whole new thing, or you know that it's like it has to stay yours. Nobody else can tell you how to fix it, but you have to know how to hear what they're saying. And then apply. How many hours would you sit in one time? Like, what's your marathon? Uh, well, I can't. Uh, probably not more than four hours at a time. Yeah. But, you know, over days and weeks and years. <laughs> Anybody else? Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Did you know your draft was done? Like, did you feel like it was done? Did you feel like. Did you feel like. 
I, when did I know it was done? That's, I think, one of the un, most unknowable. I'm, I'm sure all of everybody in this room has a different way of telling when something is done. I felt like, well, so this one, there was, I had a deadline, which was a baby was going to come out of my body, and so that book needed to be like, I was not going to have time to work on it for a while. So that was a really incredibly good way to get me to work. I worked so hard while I was pregnant the whole time, all the time. And I also think that, that, that the little baby Juju in there was giving me good ideas and made the book better. So I can thank her, not just for her deadline. Um, but, so that was, a, that was a real thing that was on the calendar. But I also wouldn't have pushed it if it wasn't ready. So it was like I, was, I really wanted to finish it before that happened, but I also wouldn't have sent it off if it hadn't been right. And then I also knew that there would be some, some editorial stuff after that point, so I had a few notes from my agent, and then I worked on those for another few weeks, and then I worked for several months after that with my editor. A lot of, we, had a, we did a lot of work, and it was much better after that. So somewhere in there, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's both an intuitive sense that you really have done everything you possibly could and that you have brought this to its like full self and that it's time to move on to something else. That's like when I start really thinking about another project and I feel like I've poured everything into the first one and I wouldn't be embarrassed if it got published and people read it, that then it's time to let it sort of head off into the world. Yeah. Are you a teacher or like teacher? Yeah, I'm a teacher. I teach in a low residency MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in New Mexico. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. It's a great it's a great job to get to do. All right. Thanks, guys. Oh, and I have to tell you that if you buy a book, I'm going to give you, first of all, there is a bucket of candy from the 1970s, not from the 1970s, but the memory of the 1970s that you can eat. And also, I will give you a little packet of magical sea salt from Martha's Vineyard if you buy a book. So just consider that. All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.